Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. Today's episode is our last for 2020, and with a new year approaching, we thought we'd try something new. Join Sean and I as we discuss the 1997 film The Devil's Advocate and why it would be a very different movie if it was made today. Heads up, this is a discussion about an R-rated film that has aged pretty poorly. Content warnings can be found in the episode description. Well, hello. Hey, Sean. <laughs> We're alive. The world hasn't fallen apart yet. Thank goodness. We still are. Although it's going to be a couple months before this comes out, right? I'm kicking myself for not thinking about doing this episode sooner because it would have been the perfect Halloween episode. But here we are. Yeah, we're working on this like branding journey. Um, we appreciate your patience as we be, you know, follow all hidden internet rules of being um, snappy and ideal for the search algorithm. Right. Neither of us have any idea how any of this works. Um, so today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We, uh, just as a fun treat for ourselves, um, we're recording this the week after the election, right? Yeah. And so to take a break, we thought just as a treat to the two of us, as the uh, U.S. government plays with fascism, we thought that we would watch a movie and just talk about it. And so we found one of the most watchable, bad contemporary films that I can think of, uh, which is 1997's The Devil's Advocate, starring uh, Al Pacino, Charlize Theron, and uh, Keanu Reeves. Sean and I have both watched it in separate places at separate times. We've taken notes. We haven't really talked very much about it before now. And uh, we're going to talk about it for all of you um, and see, see what we think. Uh, the goal here is to sort of pull it into some of the themes that we've talked about in other places and just play with it. Although this is also sort of a soft trial. I might cut this out in the edit. This is a soft trial for a podcast that I've been threatening to make for many years, which is a podcast that just involves me watching the uh, major releases from Keanu Reeves with different people and talking about them. Uh, there are some great movies in his uh, backlog. There are countless terrible ones. He's a fascinating person and a terrible actor and a great actor, and uh, I think it would be interesting. But um, I thought this would be a fun one to just try out and uh, see if there's anything there. See if anybody even listens to this episode. Keanu, if you're listening, you will forever be number one friend of the pod. Keanu Reeves, whether or not you know it, you are a friend of our pod. Uh, let's tear apart the devil's advocate. Yes. First, you have to explain why you chose it. I am not taking any ownership of this choice. And maybe a brief synopsis. Yeah, uh, so for any of you who have not watched it, giant spoiler alert um, at the top. We're going to talk about the whole thing because there's not really any way to talk about this movie without talking about every part of it. Um, so why I picked this film... Well, okay, synopsis first. So uh, the film is about Keanu Reeves as a South Florida lawyer named Kevin Lomax who, as a hotshot, he was a DA for a short time, and then he became a private defense lawyer, and he's never lost a case, his 64 cases, never lost one. And a representative from a law firm in New York comes down after Lomax wins a much-watched case about a Florida school teacher um, sexually abusing uh, one of his students, allegedly. Uh, Kevin Lomax gets the guy... Uh, off of those charges, and an attorney comes down from New York and offers him a job, basically. And so Kevin Lomax takes it, and he and his uh, wife, uh, Charlize Theron, move up to New York and start living the high life. Lomax r rises very quickly in this law firm, which is headed by Al Pacino's character, let me check my notes here, John Milton, um, who, it turns out, uh, first spoiler, is Satan running a law firm. And so Mr. Lomax is very well at this law firm. He's winning all these cases. He's pissing all the right people off and all the wrong people off. Um, and uh, eventually people start dying, right? And it turns into a horror film. There, there's a B plot alongside it where his wife is sort of losing her mind. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, in more depth. Kevin Lomax is seduced 
by a woman who works at the law firm who turns out to also be his sister, and it turns out that he is the son of Satan. And Satan needs a uh, child, a sort of antichrist. Made with his two progeny. His two progeny. And Kevin Lomax decides in an overly acted scene to kill himself instead of sleeping with his stepsister. Time rewinds, and uh, we're, we're back at the case, and he decides to uh, stop representing the teacher, walks out of court, and it's all a thing. Um, so the, re- the reason I picked this movie is because, on the one hand, there is no movie like quite like this movie. It only has like a 67 on Metacritic, and that's not bad, right? right. It, it was fairly well-received at the time. It is full of Oscar-baity moments. It's trying to... to Check a lot of weird boxes. Yeah, and it's it's really trying to sort of play above its league, right? But it's a it is a fascinating time capsule of things that you can make uh, into a movie in in the mid to late nineties that you could not know. I I right. strongly think you could not make this movie the way that it's made now. It's so weird. It's very weird, and it it's a weird script. And it's a weird story. Yes. And and I just thought it would be an interesting one to talk about. Plus, I just wanted to force you to watch it because it's yeah, it's a movie. Yeah, and it also has the trope of like late nineties, early two thousands movies being biblical. Yeah, which I feel like was a thing, right? We're like, we're gonna do Jesus and Satan, but like edgy and modern, and like for some reason that was a big trend too. Right, you're right. There were a lot of movies. God yeah. kept showing up. Yeah, but yeah. like as in every man or like his messengers, yada yada. So yeah, my biggest impression of it was it's so weird because it's both almost satirical, almost so bad it's good, but not really that bad. Nor right, like you said, is it really all that good? So it kind of sits in that middle ground of what is this? But like <laughs> not compelling enough. Yet despite it all. It was watchable, and I didn't like get bored or want to cry watching it because it was so bad. It's true. I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie. It was a bit long. Yeah, it was. It's long. It's trying to be big, but there are redeemable qualities in it. There are some really good performances. I thought. Um, yes, number one is Charlize Theron because um, she is also a stan of the pod. She's number one in the pod as well, <laughs> but she's also just like. We all know her as an excellent actress, and always it was almost a little weird to see her because if you think of Charlize in a modern context, she plays queens and spies and like playing into the glamour, and she was playing the moral center, fish out of water character. But because she is such a capable actress, she actually grounded her scenes with like you like legitimately sympathized for her and you legitimately believed her. Right. She was in her early 20s, if I'm not mistaken, in this movie. So it's like, it, it's one of the earliest roles I have ever seen her in. I'm not really super familiar with her early movie career. Mm-mm. But it, it's surprising because she is so young and she still has that like very assertive... Well, so her character gets played as an antagonist of Keanu Reeves's character's mother. Yeah, well, yeah, very first thing, really odd, is like, she's loose and wild and fun and likes to drink, unlike her right. Bible-toting mother. But then, the moment they move to New York... Total fish out of water. And, and she only, like, her driving inspiration once they get to New York is to have kids. Yes. They reveal later that she has a sister who has, like, seven kids or something. Um, but she ends up being really the only likable character out of all of the central characters and she is super likable and she's super relatable and and one of the only people in this film that behaves like a human being yes which the movie kind of justifies like they're all on just straight satan's thrall but you know but then she also has to play the hysterical woman trope because she starts to see right the cracks of the demons which also the demon effects kind of made me laugh um very uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right. Like, if you think about like how the vampires looked in that show when when they transformed into full vampire, especially in the early season, it was like they everybody was suddenly an ugly man. 
Or they just like duplicated the mouth so everyone had three mouths and three eyes. Okay. Right, yeah. So she starts to see the cracks in the facade and right, she magically, her ovaries stop working, which she's surmising, hmm, maybe his Keanu's mysterious employers are not all that great. She cuts her hair and dyes it her natural color, which is darker. And... Because Al Pacino says, oh, it looks so much better. Right. Satan convinces her to cut her hair into a not very flattering bob, I have to say. Not the greatest wig. Nor is her first wig all that good. But that that's that the her first wig as a Southern Belle is supposed to be bad. Right. It's it's very it's a nineties it's a nineties blonde perm. Um and, and her bob was it was sort of a a Rachel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it not quite but cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. It's like <laughs> This is the closest we can legally get to the Rachel without having to pay NBC or whoever ran uh, Friends. Royalties. Yeah. I thought, so she's really fantastic. And uh, Judith Ivey, who played Keanu Reeves' mom, Mm. surprised me. She's like, she's a great character actress who, I forget it, as character actresses often and, and actors often are like, I forget about them. And then they show up and I'm like, oh, it's that person. And oh, they're great. Yes. And she's playing this born and raised evangelical Christian who uh, is not sure about her son moving to New York and hates his, you know, hot wife and just wants him to go to church. And they tried to like make her the center of morality in a lot of ways, but then forgot to put her in two thirds of the film. Right, and then she was the one who fucked Satan to me. <laughs> right. So, so, and it was, yeah, that was an odd choice. Yeah, that was weird when Charlize was really the moral compass, essentially, to me. Yeah, huh. and I, 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 we should talk about, we'll come back to Charlize when we talk about later in the film, but it's like they had the two strong female character types that you could have in a movie in the 90s. Right. They put them both in, and then they didn't know which to use. And we should say, too, that this, this film's based on a book, uh, which I have not read. Which um, I don't want to read. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really want to either. A late 80s book. Um, and so I don't know how it holds up uh, in comparison. But, it, right, it, so it's trafficking in these tropes, and then it just sort of like, well, we have both of these things. I guess we'll use this one. And then try to retroactively pull the other one as the other one dies. Um, right. <laughs> So the third important woman in this film, who's also a trope, is oh, the woman in the red dress, who turns out to be Lomax's stepsister. Yeah. And I thought I thought it was really interesting. So this movie comes out two years before The Matrix, right? And the woman in the red dress was sort of a proto-meme out of that movie, right? Like, right. It, was, it was this beautiful, quote-unquote, perfect woman that, that a character programmed into a, a, a training program, and, and you were supposed to get distracted by her because she's this beautiful woman in a red dress and a sea of people and yeah. black suits, and, uh, and then you turn around and she's a an agent who's trying to kill you. And I thought that it was kind of interesting that this trope showed up in this film right and she gets no character development beyond that she shows up in a red dress when lomax comes to the office for the first time and he like sort of ogles her through the window and she's speaking italian or latin on the phone and uh she closes the blinds on him and in a very only happens in the movies kind of fashion right and kind of rolls her eyes and then he flirts with her at a party later they exchange a couple lines. She comments, uh, how would your wife feel about that or something? Kicks him off. And then you don't see her again until it's time for the two of them to make a child. Um, <laughs> so those are our three major female characters. Yes. Um, and one thing that I really respect, it's not the right word, but is that it hit all three of those tropes and it was like, we're done with major female characters. Here we are. Yeah, <laughs> it happened. And right, like you were mentioning in our pre-chat a little bit, like Charlize's character is almost feminist, or she is until they have to pl- finish playing the hysterical woman bit and kill her off. Right. She is until she's disposable. But yeah. it, it, I feel like the most fascinating thing about the, the script of this film is it feels like 
two or three different movies sort of squished together. You have a really compelling, potentially really compelling story about like a poor Southern lawyer getting the job in New York City and it corrupting him, right? Like that could be a really interesting, there are a hundred interesting short stories written about that. That could have made an interesting, if not standout film. And then you have, you are the son of Satan Yes. Or not even before we get there, you have you are working for Satan at a law firm. And that is an interesting like sort of you know, take on the the powerful boss, like peak nineties Law like, and Order realness. In fact I saw some like Law and Order character actors. I was like, Oh you you play Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Couple of them show up. There's so many character actors in this film. Like it is they spent all the money on three big stars and then they got all of these people whose faces you see and you go, Oh, it's you. And you you don't know their name. Um, and then you have this like high classical divine comedy level ending, right? Right. Which feels very much tacked on and happens in 15 minutes. Well, they like very suddenly anytime Satan comes in, like he's like trying to arbit, like you can make a choice here, but you're all like, no, you really can't make this choice. So shut up. Stop right, it. right. It it runs in. I wonder how much of that is sort of how much of that is colored by our current conversations around money, right? Because in the '90s, like, and and the '80s to a greater extent, maybe stories about like financial success were not, um, you know, it, it it's that pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Um, and I feel like this movie was trying to upend that in the way that like. American Psycho did, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, sell your soul, but um, do it actually, literally, you know, and um, <laughs> free choice. I can't make you, Satan operates on Dracula rules. You, he can't come into your house unless you invite him. Like, and that gets kind of lost when we watch it now because there is no way to look at this film where Keanu Reeves's character is a hero. Mm-mm. From from the first moment he is a bad dude because he knows he knows the people that he's defending are guilty. Right, and it's not even like a crisis of conscience like they try to play that off a little bit in in this really Oscar Beatty opening scene where he like goes to the bathroom and he takes his wedding ring off and he splashes water on his face and the hometown journalist comes in and like they have a rapport. You can't always win all the, and then he goes, right. Just like, they, oh no, what? They do this wink and click. Keanu's face when he does that is one of my favorite things. Like he, he turns his head ninety degrees somehow and winks and click. It's it's strange, but like you have this whole exchange where it's like clear that he knows that it's bad, but he's gonna get the guy off on a technicality, right? Because he can't lose. And they're setting that up as like a flawed hero character, but at no point does he actually redeem himself. He goes to New York and he represents the same people and he makes shitty decisions doing terrible things. Yeah. And so it makes his ultimate sacrifice at the end of the movie, which I guess we can talk about here, it, it makes it totally hollow, right? Right. That Everything about that last 15, 20 minutes is just like, what? First of all, they spent their entire CGI budget on it. There's this like enormous set piece behind Al Pacino, behind his desk. It's, I guess, just a giant glorified relief or black splash. And then it starts moving, like people swirling in the depths of hell. Um, they spent all their money on that. And this whole, this whole tone shift to... Now fuck your hot, sexy Italian half-sister, and we shall rule! So, to explain how we get here, right? (laughs) Okay, fine. Um, Charlize Theron, her character loses her mind, ends up in a psych ward of a hospital, and in a moment of incredible ineptitude for this hospital, she manages to lock herself in a room, get her hands on some broken glass, and cuts her own throat, and she dies. Keanu goes, he goes downstairs with blood on his shirt and talks to his mother. And, just the collar. Thank you. Just the collar. That's true. <laughs> and talks to his mother and is like, Tommy, finish the story. Um, and she tells him, oh, uh, you know, when I was 16, 
I did come to New York and I had a sexual relationship with a waiter. It's, she's kind of unclear on the details, and but the implication is that the guy knocked her up and she had a baby and 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 then told um, her son that that his dad was dead. Right? It's unclear how she knows that the father was Satan, but she does. Like right. at that she, point, apparently, like going to church enough gives you like an alarm bell when you see Al Pacino. You know it's Satan. Right, right. <laughs> you you get that demon sense, and uh, and you can see you can see Satan from a mile away, uh, but not when you're 16, I guess, or maybe he's just so charismatic. Uh, charismatic. Her accent is phenomenal, and that was way better than Keanu's. Well, right, his his sort of half accent. Um, so he goes back to confront his dad. Um, and they have this sort of weird showdown where Al Pacino tries to convince Keanu Reeves to have sex on an altar with his stepsister, who he just learned is his stepsister, and who then has the most lines that she's had in the entire film. Right. I think she has more lines in that room than she has in the previous two-plus hours. And they have this big monologue about like free choice and how the devil is never going to take that away from you and he has to want to do it and uh, Keanu ends up trying to shoot himself. Or, or he does. He commits suicide and, and breaks that. Oh, the most disturbing bit of CGI when that happens, you know, an Al Pacino screaming, no! <laughs> then like a blue ghost appears out of it, which is... I double-checked, and it is supposed to be Al Pacino, Satan, as Lucifer the Fallen Angel, and the face is mushing, and it's literally a composite of Al Pacino then, Al Pacino from The Godfather, and Keanu's face. And then you're like, ooh, this beautiful, subtle symbolism. So you kill off Charlize Theron to literally launch the end of this film. Like, her right. final mental break and and her death only exists to start what is basically the third act of the movie. Right? right. So you 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 get rid of her, and then you have these final words between Keanu Reeves and Judith Ivey, and he, Reeves' character, learns his background, and, and so you get rid of the two other female characters, and you're left with two men in a room and... A sexual object. Sexual object, who is totally like we should state that as far as anyone can tell it is uh consensual on her end like she seems she's played as totally willing down dtf yeah right she she knows what's up she knows what she's doing she knows she is a willing pawn of satan but we're supposed to have some sort of feeling about these two characters having this interaction and we have not talked to this character like at all in the film. She has existed purely as a sexual object, which maybe was intentional because she is the vessel for the Antichrist. Right. But And there was also that weird bit when Charlize and Keanu are having conception oh, I sex. Forgot about that. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's where they supposedly sow the quite literal seed of this, is where like Charlize is like, let's save the marriage. Let's let's make a baby. Um, Which is such a heel turn for her character. Right. I am realizing now that I block that scene out every time. Yeah. Because it's one of the most uncomfortable sex scenes that I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, like, like, it's just, it is bad in every possible way, right? Like, yeah. like, it is cruel and it is misogynistic and it's cold. They're having sex on the hardwood floor. It's not uh, even sexy, the CGI. Yeah. And it's, basically, Charlize's face kept getting superimposed with uh, uh, Christabella's face. And he's right. like, oh, I'm into fucking her. And then, like, not into Charlize Theron, which... Which is a classic, like, hey, where's your head at kind of trope. She literally and, says that. She says, where's your head uh, at? <laughs> like, she is such an interesting... Theron's character is so interesting up until that point, And she is arguably the most complex character in the film. Right. Right. And, and she is having very realistic struggles with, especially at first, like, like having a hard time, like 
fitting into the socialite situation. And and there is there's the the wife of the guy, the other guy that works at the law firm who lives across the hall. This black couple who are clearly there to like round out the representation. Um, check, check. And definitely problematic in the way that they are used are portrayed yeah right because this woman is somehow also demonic but the husband is not we don't ever see him right i don't think presented as 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 a demon but she is there just to torment and in the beginning before they get they fall down this hole like it is while overplayed a totally believable like fish out of water story where like suddenly she is in this they they get this beautiful giant loft apartment in manhattan somewhere and this woman is helping theron's character decorate and buy clothes and become a socialite and theron is very quickly realizing that this is not a world that she wants to be a part of and and it is a genuinely uh engaging story right and she plays it really well we want to watch that movie of <laughs> theron moving to the big city and like figuring her life out with demons <laughs> and abandoning her shitty husband who works too much um and and she like loses her mind in this apartment because she's by herself all the time and she's not getting into the things that she wanted right when moving up here she uh she has all of this money and it's not buying her happiness blah 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 but i felt like i think part of why that sex scene bothers me so much is because it is the right before it we have this like i said this real heel turn for her character where she, it's really the first time she openly says I want kids. This is all I want. This right. is the only reason that I'm with you essentially. Right. Ways. I want to have a family. Right. Which she implies sometimes, but it, it never feels like number one priority. Right. And so to save this marriage, we need to have babies and we need to do it right now. So you have that turn and you're, it, it's already kind of soured. Right. And then you have the sex scene where they're trying to introduce the idea that, there is the anti, the mother of the Antichrist, but it's not teaching you anything new about the characters, right? You already know that Theron is losing her mind, and you already know that Reeves is interested in this woman at work, right? And totally not into his marriage at home, and not really even interested in starting a family, right? Right. And so what you're left with is just this, this unnecessarily cruel scene. Right. And the follow-up interaction in terms of regarding his relationship with Theron is she's having a mental break enough to put her in a hospital and Al Pacino, ha ha ha, gives you the choice. I'm going to take you off. I'm going to take you off the case. You need to care for your wife. And Keanu's rationale for staying on the case is if they lose the case and I chose to go with her, I will resent her. Woof. Woof. What? Ooh. Right, and the case is happening tomorrow or whatever. Right, and it's a triple homicide, and he definitely did it. Yeah, on a character who I w- I was really fascinated by this. He is based on Donald Trump. Yeah, right? the, the, that one scene is literally in Donald Trump's apartment. Right, right, and he's on his third wife, and they have a kid together, and um, so so this character is implicated in the murder of his wife and his stepson. And the maid. Yes. And the stepdaughter is the only one alive. Alexander Cullen is his name, the character. And it and it's funny to me because it's very clearly Donald Trump before we all realize just how fucking stupid Donald Trump is, right? Like right. like it is this very nineties concept of Donald Trump, the real estate mogul and kind of playboy, right? He's having an affair with his secretary or something. Um, and wants to fuck his stepdaughter. And there's something about that implied, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's really clearly this very, like, New York insider baseball dig at mid-90s Donald Trump. <sighs> but yeah, so Keanu Reeves' character chooses to finish a triple homicide case, which does not... I'm no lawyer. I've never been in court, but I know for a fact that those cases do not get wrapped up quickly. You know, any podcast about murder. Uh, we'll, that, we'll let you know. <laughs> we'll let you know that. 
so he's going to wrap up the case and then he's going to deal with his wife so that he doesn't resent her, right? Yeah. And it, it, it exists so that... I wonder if this, you know, if the writers did that so that they could put her away and focus on Keanu. It, it's like they ended up with this very interesting B-plot that they didn't really know what to deal, like how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so they just like stuck it in a drawer, yep. you know? <laughs> and burned it um, and set it on fire. <laughs> right. And then, a, a, you know, 10 or 15 pages in the script later, they go, oh shit, we never worked that out. Okay, let's kill her, <laughs> you know? Oh, and yeah, and I was like reading, doing a light Wikipedia reading about this film, and apparently, which I just think is just the worst thing, the reason, because it was in development hell, probably for good reason, because it's so funky, um, but it got picked up again in the under the context of the O.J. Simpson trial, and they're like, ooh, lawyers, that's hot right now. Okay. The original proposed form was Joel Schumacher making it. I saw that. With Brad Pitt in the lead. <laughs> so, for listeners who might not know, Joel Schumacher made uh, the two Batman movies that star um, George, Clooney. George Clooney and uh, Val Kilmer. Yes. Which are famously... Nipples! Cod pieces! That is where the bat nibbles come from. That is where the Batman credit card came from. Mr. Freeze, Arnold Schwarzenegger. The point being, this could have been a very different film. Um, that would have been such a campy disaster. I would have loved it. There were some really interesting people in the running for this role, though, right? Like, it's a who's who of late 90s stars. Uh, Edward Norton was up for it. There was another, who I'm forgetting, another dark-haired white guy. And they settled on Keanu, probably coming out of, like, the success of Speed. Which, yes, and he took this with a giant pay cut over Speed 2 because he never wanted to do two movies in a row. And apparently he took this, the pay cut in order for the movie to afford Al Pacino's ask. <laughs> and Al Pacino didn't want to be in the film. Yes, several edits. Yeah, he kept having them go back and edit it and uh, finally gave in. I will say, Charlize Theron's role is very good, and I think a lot of that comes from her just being a really excellent actor, right? Right. She's she's just talented, and, and she did the best that she could with the, <laughs> with the, the shit. shitty script. Yeah. And she did an amazing job. Right? Really? And Keanu Reeves is peak 90s Keanu, coming off of the success of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and uh, which I think came out the year before. No, that came out in 92. So he, he did that, and he's got speed under his belt. Uh, Point Break is happening somewhere in here. So he's kind of like heartthrob. Which, yeah. But it's very much Keanu Reeves, right? And then you have Al Pacino, who... Pacino is a fascinating actor because he can be a very good actor if he can just play Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. And I think that this role shines because he's not playing Satan. He's playing Al Pacino. Yeah. So I have seen Al Pacino movies before, but I haven't seen like a whole lot of them. And I was probably too young in the 90s to be like, oh, this is Al Pacino. So I feel like a lot of the role kind of just hangs itself on Al Pacino is charismatic man and just let loose, do the the thing. Right. He has the same thing that Jim Carrey has in that he is never not himself. Mm -hmm. And and every role ends up just being Al Pacino. And there's, there are times when that works, right? Right. I think this movie, because it's so over the top and that he is so obnoxious. Yeah. It works. Scarface, it worked for the same reasons as some of his later films, it did not work because <laughs> at some point he just forgot how to act. It's really fascinating to me because he was so understated in The Godfather. Right. And I, it's been a long time since I saw that movie. Right. And I wonder how I would feel about it now. But he is so understated and plays that character who in the book is really flat. Um, With so much depth and humanity. Yeah, he, he, he plays him really well. And in this movie, he's kind of allowed to just go all out and it works that does not make it good no but i i find him captivating in this role yeah it feels a little bit like they said hit record here's 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 a scene here's some people do the thing i found that one really cringy scene when he's like like singing along to frank sinatra was him totally improving or having the idea and i just thought it was terrible and added 
nothing to the pacing, especially when it was <laughs> happening in the big showdown. I was like, what is, what? Excuse me? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it totally was. Like, it, it just totally was Al Pacino. And that's what most of the reviews that I took a look at from the 90s were like, Al Pacino is great. This movie is a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I mean, think about all of the other depictions of Satan that you've seen in American blockbuster cinema. Like, oh my God. Yeah, this is good c- comparatively. Yeah. What's that one where Will Smith plays Satan? And that was just really unnerving to me. I have no idea. What have movie you not heard of this about? one? Oh, if you want to talk about terrible movie it's called winter's tale from 2014 it is a burning train wreck Mm. and yeah will smith plays satan yeah interesting i would like to point out that in this film almost every minority character has a connection to satan and i think that that is one of the reasons why this movie could not be made now in the way that it is because it is blatant right yeah especially that one character the first case that Keanu in New York is given and it's a dude who uses spiritualism and or voodoo that we're led to believe but he has 15 million dollars in his bank account right I think it was inspired by a couple of real cases basically the the case in the fiction is that this man sacrificed a goat for his mishmash of um Caribbean and African religions that this movie gives him and the health department comes after him and I I believe that there, I meant to look this up, but I believe that there are, there is at least one Supreme Court decision that determines that that is a valid religious practice and like falls under free speech. And I think that they were trying to touch on that. Right. But it turns out when Kevin Lomax goes to this guy's basement apartment, he is actually like a black magic voodoo man and takes a cow tongue out and silences the opposition lawyer with nails right? literally in the couch right and it, and it's implied that he regularly works with al pacino right so we have that then we have the other partner in the firm who is this this black guy who lives across the hall from keanu and and charlie's theron whose wife who is also black tortures their own character mm-hmm. then there's a scene later on where they're where uh, pacino and, and and keanu reeves go to a title fight and then they go to like a bar, like a Mexican restaurant afterwards. Right. And there's one black woman at the table who is somehow connected to Satan. And the musical number is there for him. Like like there's a mariachi band or, or a salsa band. Right, but then it busts into flamenco. Uh, or flamenco band. Some, some sort of... Latin-Spanish mishmash. Again, uh, it's not entirely clear. Playing behind them just to give Satan the ability to dance and show that he's a fun guy except his dancing wasn't very good anyways <laughs> i i was struck by this it had occurred to me in previous watches that like that was happening to some level but it it, it really stuck out to me this time oh right and like how his entire company's board is basically a un smattering of every person of every ethnicity but then you don't even see most of them later Mm-mm. they're there for 30 seconds and these characters have names that you hear maybe once don't ever hear them again. They're 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 just sort of set pieces. I thought that that was really, that can't be accidental, right? Like that's got to be intentional, mm-hmm. right? And it's and it's like well, it's like that unconscious bias thing where you you just aren't thinking about that, um, and it just happens. But it is also you know a greater symptom of systemic racism. Totally. And how much of it is because it was 1997 and that's how we cast movies? And how much of it was like, we actually have a really diverse cast? And it is. It's it's a pretty diverse cast for 1997. It, and it's tough because I, I think that you can make the argument that there just aren't very many non-Satan related roles in this film. Everybody is connected to Satan, which is kind of the point, right? Right. But it still feels very bad. Yeah. And it still feels unnecessary in a way that was shocking to me in, in this this watch. <laughs> There's almost an implication that like they're mistreated by society enough that Satan takes them under their way. Right. <laughs> Which oof, I don't know how I um, mm. But it also 
I mean, it speaks to a long history in Western culture of white people being the pure race and black people literally symbolizing demons and Satan. And, you know, that that goes all the way back to pre-Renaissance religious art in Europe. Like, and I want, and so I, then I wonder, like, is this movie trying to reference that? And it is just like tone deaf. Like, yeah, are they clumsy as hell about it? Right. And they just forgot to let the audience in on it. Right. Right. Um, I feel like we're giving the film a little too much credit to say that, though. <laughs> right. I think even thinking on that level. And you know if they did a 2020 version, they would do some weird, diverse, empty stunt casting. <sighs> there is a version of this film, mm. and maybe it is three separate movies, where it's almost good, right? Yes. Like, like where they were conscious about it. Like if this was just a small town lawyer gets hired at a law firm in New York and loses himself to work, right? Which I think is kind of the moral, the greater moral of the story, right? which gets bogged down in this overinflated ending. But really the point of the film is like, you know, don't only think about yourself and don't only think about work because it will corrupt you mm-hmm. and, and you will destroy everything around you. In a, in a subtle, unterrible way. Right. And there is a movie where small town lawyer turns out he's the son of Satan. And that's the whole movie. And you get a, a, a nice B-grade horror film out of it. Yeah, that'd right? be fun. But I feel like they so wanted this movie to be so many different things. They wanted it to be and, both of those. And I think right. Keanu is only in, I only would cast Keanu in the B-grade horror one. Yeah, I, I think that they're 1997 Brad Pitt, who I think is underappreciated as an actor, right? Because he got so wrapped up in being like, famous, being famous and, and being the, the hot guy, you know, who's married to hot people. Yeah, right. But like him in seven and him in Fight Club yes. and him in Ocean's Eleven, even like that level of acting, make him a Southern lawyer. Oh, which you can do, yeah. And 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 tell that story. That would have been really something. But instead, we ended up with this, <laughs> with this movie. We've been kind of avoiding it, but your thoughts on Keanu in this movie? It's a, it's a, it's peak Keanu, I would say. <laughs> uh, that accent is so baffling. It is so much better. So, what I did for Halloween this year. Uh-huh in the middle of COVID was I had one too many drinks. And while my roommate was, was at his girlfriend's house, I watched the 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula, which stars Keanu Reeves. And uh, as, as the, uh, the, the doctor who, or is he a lawyer? I don't remember. He goes to Dracula's palace and, and, and Dracula's is a surprisingly, Interesting Gary Oldman. Yes. And peak Winona Ryder yes. is in it. She is so great. Uh, Anthony Hopkins plays Van Helsing, which is delightful. <laughs> but Keanu like tries to do a full British accent in that movie. And it comes across as uh as like Bill and Ted Keanu. Right. Like Stoner yeah. Keanu yeah. doing a British accent. So I felt like this movie was an improvement because it is a very subtle accent, but it is distracting because Keanu Reeves cannot do accents. Right. I literally have written down when Keanu is drunk, I was like, this is Bill and Ted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, I can't find it here, but I wrote down something like Keanu Reeves characters are at their best when they are lost and confused. There's a moment where he turns to Al Pacino and goes like blank face. It goes, What? It, it is reminiscent of all of the great moments in the matrix. Right. You know, and part of what makes that movie great is because he is just asking questions for two thirds of the film. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. And then he shoots a bunch of people. Right. And you really don't have cool to style. act for that. Right. Right. And it is striking to me because like Keanu has three speeds. He is, blowing everything up and shooting everybody and doing kung fu which we know he does very well the john wick movies 
are not good movies, but they are great Keanu Reeves movies. Yes. And, it, and he is great in them. There is a guy who is totally out of his league, number two. And you get a little bit of that in here. I feel like it, if they had played that up more, it would have been much more successful. Yes. And then you get stoner Keanu. Right. And he just does that stoner, like implied stoner just so well. Right. Which morphs into the, hi, I'm lost here. And so he doesn't get to do any of those three speeds in this movie. And I feel like it makes it that much worse of a film for it. Like it, he is just the wrong man for this role. Right. It keeps positing him as simultaneously competent because of Satan, but also just because he is super competent, especially that like the last part against Satan. He like all of a sudden has a backbone and so much agency in order to do all this stuff. And you're like, where did this come from? He has a handgun and he's fired. He's clearly fired it before. Like he knows how to use a gun. You right. Know? And he like admits his, his sin of I win. And you're like, um, right. what the fuck? But in none of the court scenes, is he ever a really convincing lawyer or cutthroat or cutthroat? No, he just knows the technicalities and that on its own is not bad. Right. Like right. you can have a, compelling character that way right but not this character like like he has he would have to be cutthroat to never lose a case and and to leave the da's office to be a a private defense attorney (sighs) and uh but here we are (laughs) well who would have replaced best replaced him in this train wreck the answer is that's the thing i don't know the answer is that this movie should not have been made Probably. probably or it should have just been like pulled apart and put back together yeah carrie fisher should have done some script doctoring on it and it would have become <laughs> an entirely different film yeah and my reaction to hearing that al pacino required several edits before he agreed on what was this movie pre al pacino edits Ooh. that's a good question it could have been better honestly who knows <laughs> i could, but i got the sense that it was less serious when I, yes. whatever I was reading made it seem like he wanted it, to, he felt like it was too slapsticky for him. And if you're gonna hire Joel Schumacher, who is not known for his dramatic pieces, it would have been campy gay delight. Yeah, right. I don't even know who the director is who directed this film. His name is Taylor Hackford, and what he's best known for is winning an Oscar for in 2004, Ray mm. about mm. Ray Charles. Uh, oh, and an officer and a officer and a gentleman in 1982. Okay, it's probably how he got this movie. I guess, but it's it's a question of so maybe a different director and a different Kevin Lomax and a heavily edited script. Yeah, I feel like if you did those three things, but you kept you kept Al Pacino and you kept Charlize Theron, and you were much more thoughtful about your choices, side character casting. Yeah. Uh, you could have had a really uh, really interesting sort of movie. Right. So therefore it sits at a wisp and a hint of possible greatness. The lesson in this film is that there is a compelling movie inside of it somewhere. And this just is not it. <laughs> I don't suggest that listeners watch this film. I would not personally endorse it unless you are very curious. Uh, just go into it with a open mind, knowing that you will be offended by things that have not aged well, and that it is not a good film, and uh, and and take it for what it is. But you will laugh at it, so take that. Yes, I do. Maybe as a last point, I do want to say that there are some pretty impressive visual effects throughout for the time. We talked about the sort of backdrop, which so. Al Pacino's Satan lives in a gigantic office, right. which is a minor plot point. Um, and behind his oversized desk is this big twisting sculpture. Relief thing, yeah. It looks like it's made out of driftwood. It's very clearly a reference to the tree, the apple tree or the fig tree in the Garden of Eden. Subtle. Very subtle. Uh, and and so like in the final scene, suddenly there are people in the sculpture and then those people move 
1997, it would have been like, oh my God, that's incredible. There is one moment that really stuck out to me, and it's when, after uh, Charlize Theron's character has killed herself, and Keanu Reeves has talked to his mother, and he steps out of the hospital, and we get that wide, what would now be a, a drone shot of the street in New York City that is completely empty. Right. It's very convincing. Yes. Um, but if you look at the horizon line, you can see that it's a matte painting and he's on a soundstage. Ah. <laughs> um, but like. Practical effects. It, it's, it's super, it is super convincing. And, and at the, in the time, like they put a lot of energy into a shot that is, that is only there for a minute and a half. Yeah, right. but that's how movies get made, question mark? Especially big budget? Right, so stuff like that was really striking to me. There are a surprising number of really practical effects. Um, there are also a lot of really bad stock footage of flames over whatever's in scene. So, you know, take it for what you want. Whatever gets it done, yeah. So, shall we, ra- shall we end this by rating it? Sure, what kind of scale would you like to use? I, I'm going to leave that to you. You're the person who came into this having to, to watch it, and uh, you have this, a sort of removed sort of look at it. You don't have a horse in the race that is me starting a podcast about Keanu Reeves. <laughs> um, how would you rate this movie? Like a C-. minus. It's like, it should be a movie just based on a script that's like a G or an F. But it is lifted by charisma, um, good performances, and just sheer will of the 90s of it all to make it, like, (laughs) try to work. I do have to say, I like, Keanu is, like, charismatic, undeniably, in it. Even though you're just like, oh my god, no, stop. That's the magic of him in a film like this, right? Right. It's terrible, but you just keep wanting to watch it. Despite it all. And I think that sums up this film. It is awful, and by any measure of the imagination, it should be something you turn off in 15 minutes, but for some reason, you just can't look away, and it just keeps keeps you coming back. And I hope that we do that for you, too. <laughs> yeah, I hope that we haven't lost too many listeners on this episode, um, <laughs> this very special episode. Uh, if you have any thoughts on it, please leave some feedback for us. Let us know what you what you thought we are this episode's probably coming out towards the end of the year mm-hmm. and we are experimenting with um you know some uh, additional formats and stuff to break out of just the straight two-on-one interview yeah we want to make things a little bit more conversational uh not necessarily in this form but we're playing with some stuff so uh give us some feedback let us know what you think on this in particular and uh we look forward to hearing from you uh and uh if you hated it come back for our next episode uh, and uh, you know it'll be something different we promise It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?